Can we all stand, please, and welcome Jeff Crooks as he comes? Jeff loves the Lord, and he has a great revelation for us. We're thankful for you, Jeff. Thank you. Well, good morning. With some measure of uh, preparedness, the microphone is working, I hope? Yes. Excellent. Yes. So I've uh, taken a little bit of administrative liberty in seeing that everyone would have one of these handouts just as a help to you, because there's so much content. I'm aware of that. It's a little challenging. And rather than you feeling like you're desperate to keep up with trying to have notes or what the scripture references are, or flipping back and forth between pages or doing searches on your phone, and things can get m muddy. I'd rather have you hear the content and focus and then be able to take this back with you and study and, uh, and learn from it. So that's, that's that intention. Is there anyone that's missing one that needs one? I think there might be an extra around. It looks like we're good. Okay. And what a blessing. Already the Lord has spoken with us, hasn't he? Yes. This morning. Yes. And he's even revealed himself even through some of the things that we ourselves said. Isn't that interesting? That he is the Lord. That there is no other. That you are God alone and so forth. And that's characteristic of when the church gets together, there's going to be some talk about our Lord Jesus. So with that, let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, God. All of this is yours. It's all about you. And we are here as your humble servants, just drawn into what you're doing. And we are so grateful, God. Lord, I pray that you would Allow me as a vessel to carry your truth and to present it faithfully and that all other things would simply fall away, that you would be our focus, that you would be our glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, last week I, I was speaking here as well. Some of you were not here last week, so um, those, that material is available, I think, on our website, et cetera. So... Uh, Last week, what I was talking about, I drew an analogy of uh, drafting, as in race cars where one gets so close to the other and kind of gets drawn into what that lead car is doing. And geese do a similar thing, and they're able to actually extend their distance by like 70% because they are drafting with the lead. Uh, I drew an analogy about us being drawn into God in his power, as he's the one that's making the big moves, and we just get pulled in. Glory to God. I talked about pressure cooker times, or I called it crucible moments, where things just don't seem to line up with what we understand to be God's best or God's promises. Rex gave a, a testimony to that effect even this morning. We can sense this, the pressure of things increasing as God intensifies things for his glory. Like as he's talking to Moses and he says, this isn't going to be easy. He tells Moses this, and then we know what the, the, the plagues and so forth were. We, we, in our own situations, we've got this uncanny sense that just God's up to something. This is big. I can't figure it all out, but something is going on here. 
And I want to encourage us in our, those times. So we took our cues last time from the calling of Moses. This time we're going to transition and to focus our attention to the nation of Israel. So this maybe comes a little bit closer to home. Moses, we can put him on a pedestal and think that doesn't really apply to us. But the nation of Israel, everybody that was taken out of Egypt, we can maybe relate a little bit more to that as they move toward the promised land. And that, pro that word promised land or that phrase, that doesn't really help us all that much. We might use a, an expression I've heard people say, like, this is the honeypot. Well, I don't know exactly what that is, but give me some. Sounds good, right? Promised land, we can interpret a little bit that way. Okay, great, they got the promised land. You know, but we miss the fact that it was an inheritance. It was the Lord's inheritance that he said, here's what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to be drawing you into in the future. It wasn't just a sweet spot. It was their inheritance. And so I believe we may have a thing, thing or two to learn from Israel as we, in our own time, lean into what God has for us, into how God is using us in our circumstances, in our own generation. Excuse me. So right at the outset, really before we get started, I have some observations that we need to make, and these will be the first few uh, scriptures that are on your uh, handout. There are some things in this narrative that we can't gloss over. We can't bypass them, especially in our cultural uh, environment or climate today. And while this isn't really the main point I want to dwell on, I am compelled to touch on it at least briefly because we need to be informed. We need to understand that the Lord is the Lord, His Word is His Word, and He does things in a certain way. So for the sake of time, I have to be blunt. I ask your um, forbearance with me, but here we go. We're going to dive right into the deep end, okay? We're hitting it hard right out of the gate. And the matter that I'm referring to is this. Israel had to go into the land that they were promised, and they had to take possession of it, which means dispossessing the people that were living there. And that still may sound a little bit ambiguous to some people, so let me quote from Deuteronomy 13. This isn't on your sheet. 15, it says, committing them to the sword and devoting their cities to destruction. Now, that's pretty raw. But it's inescapable. It's in Scripture. And that language can make our hair stand on end, especially in these days where we're hearing about ethnic cleansing or territorial land grabs. But of course, those things are nothing new, right? But we hear those, and in our culture, we respond, and we have certain responses to how these things. I want to make sure that we understand what's going on in this context. And how do we do that? For that, we need to turn to Scripture, and we can look at the books that Moses gave us to find out what the Lord said about this situation. And I want to emphasize that this isn't just anyone speaking. This is Moses. We studied him last time. He was a man attested as a prophet of God in his own generation by the miracles that people saw performed at his hand. This isn't just anybody. This is the Lord's testimony that he has given us and recorded for our benefit in Scripture. So I just want us to be clear. So I'm going to read these 
uh, verses that are in your handout. Exodus 23, 23. When my angel goes before you and brings to you all these nations, the brackets there, that's my trying to condense the words a little bit for our help. I will blot them out. This is the Lord speaking. I will send my terror before you and will throw them into confusion. Leviticus 18. The nations that I'm driving out before you have become unclean and the land became unclean. You are to keep my commandments and my rules and do none of these abominations, lest the land vomit you out when you defile it, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Leviticus 20, verse 23. You shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Not pleasant words, raw language. This is God's perspective as to what happened. Now, last week, we talked a little bit about judgment, and I mentioned the flood and how horrifying that event was. And yet, in that flood, God preserved a people unto himself. And we saw that judgment wasn't only condemnatory. It wasn't all hellfire and brimstone. That's how we think of it. But the Lord has a redemptive purpose in the things that he is doing to hold things to his intended purposes, which he stated from creation all the way through the scriptures and right up to present day. <clears throat> God doesn't take kindly to humans breeding corruption on the ground that he had intended for human flourishing in righteousness. His forbearance is kind, but it does not last forever. So there were three observations I'd like to make about this situation, and then we'll get more into the heart of what I'd like to talk about. So our observations are these. First, this wasn't just a military campaign that was conceived by men. There was no huge military machine like Egypt had. This was, there were no chariots. This was hand-to-hand -hand combat. But more significantly, as the scriptures we've just read attest, the Lord the angel of the Lord went before them. This was something that the Lord was doing, but he was using, and we need to hear this, his people, Israel, in the process, which is the next point. National Israel still had to enter and dispossess the people living there. It's messy, but they still had to do it. They were still God's called, and he was using them in this situation. God chose to use his people directly as instrument of his will. <clears throat> now, we, I'm talking about us in this room and listening online, etc. We don't always hear what's going on in our pivotal times and crucible moments, etc. We don't always hear so clearly, right? right? Especially when it's happening. Like when it's all over us, we usually get a few clues a little bit later on or perhaps even years on. But sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm glad not to know all the details right in the middle of it. It's like, Lord, wake me up after all the anesthesia wears off. God does things. He handles different people, different situations in different ways. But he's the Lord. It's his doing. In this case, though, Israel was told. They knew their call, their role, and what was supposed to happen. And the third point, this is important, Israel was no less subject to God's righteous standards than Canaan was. It wasn't a free pass, right? 
In fact, they were probably more accountable to God's standards than Canaan was. And we know that in time, judgment fell on them as well, even as Moses had warned. In these verses, we looked at in the middle quote there, it says, keep my statutes, lest the land vomit you out. This is not unique, some you know, privilege that you get. These are about holy things, things that the Lord has found valuable, things about how the Lord is directing and governing creation according to his intent, because he has an intent. He has a purpose. And sometimes he draws us into that. Sometimes we draft the Lord, we're drawn in, and we didn't even realize that that was what was going on. Do you remember... There's a, a passage in Joshua chapter 5. So the people are beginning to get ready to take the land. They're getting ready to go in. And Joshua is there. I believe he's praying. And all of a sudden, he is confronted with what Scripture says is the commander of the Lord's armies. That'll wake you up. And Joshua, in his keen military mind, asked him, Are you for us or for them? And the response is critical. And I'll paraphrase, but my sense of it is this. No, you misunderstand. This is not about which of you gets to declare victory. You need to take off your shoes because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now, what would make the ground where he's standing holy? Only the fact that God had an express intent purpose for it. Right? And so there we are. Those are the three points. I wanted to take that time because people can dismiss God's word as if God is all love and would never do anything that brings correction. Well, a faithful parent brings correction, right? God is going to be faithful to see that his good intentions for this world shall surely come to pass. We read that last time or heard it. As surely as I live, all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, and the Lord will have his way. So here's why I've labored over, over these points. There's things that we do well to learn from how God disciplined Israel and how he brought them into their inheritance. And the danger is that some will and have take something like this and apply it with selfish ambition, going after their foes with religious fervor, using scripture to justify their actions and destroying their own testimony and the testimony of the church in the process. We don't need to look far in history to see that played out. So I felt compelled to mention this. But we need to learn from the principles of God's discipline. We don't need to recreate Israel's natural Israel's situation. I'm not issuing any kind of a battle cry here. I will quote Paul in my attempt to be as clear as I can be. 2 Corinthians 10, 14. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not natural. They're not of the flesh. The weapons that we fight with, this is the NIV, are not the weapons of the world. What would the weapons of the world be? Chariots, missiles, you name it. I don't need to list the litany. It is a mistake to assume that the battle God wants us fighting as Christians is to be waged according to human methods and human reason. 
but it's also a mistake that there's no to assume that there's no battle. The very next verse says, our weapons, evidently we have some, are powerful to the destroying of arguments and every lofty opinion, theory, reason, argument, and pretense. Thank you, Amplified Bible. That is raised up against the knowledge of Christ, taking every thought captive to Christ. Christ has centrality, and our weapons are centered around him and what he is doing. Ephesians 6.11 says that we are to put on the full armor of Christ, which we would have no need of if there was no battle. So as the redeemed people of God in our New Testament era, we're not warring over possessions or land boundaries or anything of that nature. Our commander, one greater than Joshua, I'm speaking of Jesus, said this, or it was said of him this, ask of me and I will give you the nations as an inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And Jesus reinforced that for us when he told his disciples, all authority has been given to me and I want you to go make disciples of every nation. He reinforced his royal rights. We're not worrying over possessions or land boundaries because the only boundary on God's map is the ends of the earth. Or maybe to say it a little bit more accurately, everything under heaven. That's the boundary that God has established. We're not, making, we're not to take up a natural sword like Peter and try to defend the Lord. We're taking up the sword of the Spirit in order to disciple nations. And as with Moses and as with Israel, there will surely be implications. I'm not saying that this is all happening out in ethereal land and we get to do, you know, no, God, we are human beings. We are in a body. There will be implications in the natural that we will have to tend to, but we have to recognize that the battle is primarily a spiritual one. God has and has always had an intention for the entirety of this earth. And that intention has always involved the people. And so we've got some work to do. God's chosen to involve us as his instruments of righteousness in the earth. He told Adam, I want you to take dominion over the entire earth, rule over it, fill it, subdue it. Moses, as I live, the whole earth will be filled with my glory. Church, I want you to take the things that I have said and disciple and teach nations. No limit. Everything under heaven. And that'll take some effort. How's that going to happen? Of course, through the faithful, our faithfulness in the gospel. But I also want to emphasize sometimes through our job situations, Things you're involved with every day, sometimes family, friends, neighbors, school situations. If I can say it this way, any situation where your first inclination is to cut and run, but you know that the right thing to do is to stand firm and to walk something through, and you're trying to figure out even how to do that and what the right way to do that is, and can I do that? Come back to Scripture 
Check the pattern. I mentioned this last week. God does things according to a pattern. Check the pattern. It could be that you were born for such a time as this. And with that, let's go to these principles that I'd like to share with us. So principle number one is worship before warfare. Worship before warfare. When God met with Moses on the mountain before he went to Pharaoh, God told Moses, I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And I think, what kind of a sign is that? That's after he's already gotten them out of Egypt. This is where my mind goes. Now, granted, Moses had already seen signs. He'd even performed signs at his own hand. And yet, God's saying, this is going to be a sign to you. You're going to bring this people out, and you're going to serve God on this mountain. That's because Moses' commission wasn't just to get them out of Egypt. It was to get them into the promised land. Moses learned about God on that mountain. We talked about how God appeared to him the great I am. And Israel needed some discipling too, in similar fashion. So Moses took Israel out to the mountain, and the first thing that we find God impressing through Moses upon his people is his love for them. Exodus 19, starting in verse 3, the middle of the verse. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation's. These are the words that you will speak to the people of Israel. God's earth intention expressed in covenantal love towards a people. So that was the first thing that God impressed upon the people through Moses. The second thing is he brought his law. And it's in this same context of love and deliverance. The very same context. We think, you know, that the, uh, the Ten Commandments start with the first commandment. There's a very significant preamble, and it starts like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. It's in the context of his love. The context of his deliverance. We see God's heart expressed all the way down where it hits in the natural. And from that place, God says, here's my law, an expression of my character that you're to live out. Finally, Moses receives, and we have the detailed instructions for the building of the ark, the tabernacle, and the sacrificial system. All of that foreshadows our Lord Jesus Christ, who was to come. What I want us to catch here is that the first thing that God always does is he leads us to the cross. That place of God's express love for us, the place of sacrifice, that's where God leads us. The place of purification. 
Glory be to the Lord. Israel needed to know the Lord and his ways, and he led them to know his love, his law, and the sacrificial system. He took them to the cross. God said, I've loved you. I have delivered you. But you can't come to me any old way. The way to come, uh, come near is not cheap. It's not easy. It's a fearful and holy thing. The sacrifices are to remind you of your perpetual need of cleansing and atonement. They were done every day, not because God needed that, but because the people needed to see that. It was part of God's discipleship plan. God said, you will be my people, but you will also be marked to me or by me or for me. And he gave them a mark. What was that mark? It was circumcision. Now that's kind of interesting. You could try to fake it. Just cover it up. Other people might not know. But the Lord will know. Just ask Zipporah. That was Moses' wife. Have you been baptized? Transitioning to the New Testament church. Have you been baptized? That's the New Testament mark of the Lord upon you. People can't see it, but surely the Lord sees it. The sign of the beast in Revelation holds no power like this mark. Are you marked by the Lord? God said, you can't live any old way before me. There was a pattern to how they were to encamp. They were to order themselves with the ark, the very presence of God at the central point. This was no, just nomad caravan traipsing across the desert. If you stumbled upon this people in the desert, you would surely know that there was something very distinct that was happening there. It was unmistakable. Our New Testament meetings are to be similarly ordered with Christ as central so that if someone happens in to wander into the meeting, they will know that surely there is something unique and distinct happening here amongst this people. Something's different. You see... Our warfare, that is, coming into the land, how we get into the land, the stuff we have to do that that takes some effort, our warfare is utterly dependent on our worship. When God, and then God underscores that, doesn't he? How did they come into that first city that they were supposed to take? The massively fortified fortress city of Jericho, those thick walls, how were they to take that? March around the city for six days, following the ark, and then on the seventh day, march around it seven times and blow the trumpet, and the great defenses of that city collapsed. There you have it. I don't need to add much to that story. We shall not succeed in the things of God without his order, his law, the centrality of Christ impressed upon us and then expressed in our worship. And so a word about this warfare. I 
I've already said that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not natural. John 18, verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And what he meant there is it's not of the natural order of governors and kings and nations, the way we think about how things get ruled. He says that's not what's going on here. It's not that he had no government. That's not the natural order that he's talking about. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up. But my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus did not come to establish a theocratic military kingdom in the New Testament, but he came to establish a holy, righteous, redeemed community exercising divine authority in this earth. He came to commission a people, and that's us. Jesus didn't set up a campaign office in Jerusalem. At one point, the crowd pressed him, and they were, it says they were determined to make him king. But he had nothing of it and passed right through the midst. And he's moved on. If we are focused on victories that we can see with our natural eyes, God may pass right through our midst and we will have missed him. There's implications in our time for statements like that. Now, I do want to move on to say that what Jesus did do was a powerful, impactful thing. Jesus did execute a seismic shift in government of nations and of this world, but he did it in a way not using those natural things. At the cross, it says he defeated Satan, disarmed all manner of rulers, of powers, and authorities, and made a public spectacle of them. That's what Jesus did. Revelation says that Satan is bound in chains and unable to deceive the nations in the ways that he had. There has been a seismic change in government, in our world, for which I'm grateful. After the resurrection, Jesus said, all governmental authority of all manner on earth and in heaven no exceptions, has been given to me, and then he delegated that authority to the church, which was a direct stick in the eye of the devil. Because Jesus, catch this, Jesus replaced the deceiving of the nations with the discipling of the nations through us. Glory to God. God will have his way. Thank you, Sally. All of which sounds like a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy that the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms of, under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. That sounds like what Jesus was doing. And then we know in Ephesians 1.10, I, I call this God's master plan. I'm just captivated by this verse. It says an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Aha, oh, oh, pay attention. What would that be? The fullness of the times. That all things in heaven and on earth be united and summed up in Christ. Christ as center. Yes. Glory to God. 
when you begin to catch a hold of things like this in your spirit, when the stuff like this starts to resonate on the inside, you soon believe, be, realize you haven't got a hold of it. It's got a hold of you. You begin to press into the Lord. I talked about pressing in, getting past that turbulence. How do you do that? You press in through prayer, meeting with like-minded believers, through getting into the Word. In short, taking any move that you can to push through the difficulty to where you know that you've heard the Lord. You've touched Him. You've caught something. You've caught even just a glimpse of what it is that God's doing in a circumstance or a situation. That's what sustains you as you face unknown trials. Am I right, Rex? You're caught up with the Lord in what he's doing. You're pulled in by the winds of his spirit, drafting close as he's the one that's moving. And it's as if you can feel the spirit dancing beneath your own lame feet. Principle two, consecration before conquest. Do you recall the second city that Israel was to face? Ai? How'd that victory go? If we remember how that came about, it was first through a stinging defeat because there was sin in the camp. Joshua 7.10, Israel has sinned. This is the Lord speaking. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, and they have taken some of the things devoted to destruction. They have stolen and lied and put them on their own belongings. We are a consecrated people. We can't hold on to unconsecrated things, things that are devoted to destruction. God takes very seriously his judgments. If we're going to be in that close place near the Lord, we need to be a consecrated people, devoted to his holiness. Understanding this requires some measure of maturity. What was it that Achan had? A cloak, some gold, and a few coins. Are those things evil? Achan probably already had some of that in his tent. And where would he have gotten that? Maybe from Egypt because God said to ask for it. Do you see that? There's a difference here. And it's not because of what the things were. But it was because of what God was doing. We have to be close to the Lord. We've got to hear. We've got to be consecrated. We've got to know what he's doing. You know, if we're going to be a nation consecrated and set aside for purpose, we're going to be exemplifying some of those characteristic traits of God's ownership. And sometimes that means that the riches of kingdoms or other people or things that other people are building or pursuing are off limits for us. Sometimes it means that. And is it, are those things evil? That's not what I'm saying. As a consecrated people, sometimes there are things that are just off limits for us. Second Samuel 24, I'll summarize. David was going out to buy a piece of land to build an altar 
on and make a sacrifice to the Lord. But he had no altar and nothing to sacrifice. So there was this man, Aruna, if I can pronounce it correctly, that ran out to meet him and said, Here, David, take all of this. I know what you're doing. The Lord's upon you. This is your, take everything. It's yours, everything you need. And here's David's response. No, but I will buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. It was offered to David for free, but David had to pay above the going rate because it was intended for holy purpose. Consecration before conquest. That's going to mean that our worship that I talked about before is going to have to extend beyond just what we express and on into our conduct. We're not free to do anything in any manner that we please. There are practical implications, like I said, for what this means today. Right now, there are movements afoot in these politically charged times where Christians are setting aside consecration in favor of political expediency. All I can say is that this has been tried. We read of it in the scripture, and it never ended well. Think of Saul, the king of the people's choosing. In the New Testament, we have more telling words in these. We have no king but Caesar. We live in strange times. I'm not trying to under... I can't express them. I don't understand them. It's turbulent times. But some people in desperation, sensing that, rather than drawing to the Lord and knowing what he's doing in these times, letting him be the one that's leading the way, in desperation, they're seeking political solutions to spiritual problems. If we can get the right man elected, if we can get this law changed, if we can get these justices seated, then what? I can tell you that these things are important. I'm not saying they're not important. But they are more like the weather vane on top of the structure than the cornerstone upon which it's built. This is the outward skirmish, those things. But the real battle is a battle for the heart. And if the heart's not right, that weather vane is going to whip every which direction according to the winds of change. Colossians 2.23 says that legalistic measures are of no value in fighting the sinful indulgence of the flesh. We are in a spiritual battle. Some will say that these political things are necessary in order to win. But I would argue that Jericho might attest differently. Massive institutions built up over years with walls that seem impenetrable are no match for God's people walking together in obedience according to their faith. Second Corinthians 7.14, the Chronicles, sorry, 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If there is drought or locust or plague or pestilence, and these are my words, or any other foul consequence of disobedience and wayward hearts, if the spiritual climate is a foul, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their, 
sin and heal their land. And that's where most people stop the quote, but it continues. For I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name might be there forever. And if we need only to go back to the ground where that was stated and to look at the temple today to understand that God was not talking about the building. Excuse me. He was talking about this house. This house. He was talking about the house of Jesus. You've heard of the house of Windsor? It's not a house. It's a bunch of people. Under one blood. We are the house of Jesus under one blood that he sacrificed for us. He's talking about consecrating a people for his name, that his name might be there forever. We, Ephesians 2.22, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. That's principle number two, consecration before conquest. Principle number three, in all things, humility. Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you new to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Well, aren't we special? We are, but we need to keep reading. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the people, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. It's the Lord's love. It's the Lord's faithfulness, like we mentioned last week, to his promises that he has already made. The Lord is determined in his purposes. Under the ends of the earth, nothing will stop him. What could? It's not because of some greatness that we have achieved that the things that I'm talking about these two weeks are true. That's not why they're true. They're true, in fact, more to opposite reason. God, because of the great love with which he loved us while we were still actively sinning against him, Christ died for ungodly folk like you and me. That's why these things are true. The Lord's done it. The Lord has gone before. Thank you, Jesus. Let me ask you a sobering question. Can you imagine knowing that by God's plan it had fallen to you to commit the occupants of Canaan to destruction because of the sin that was there? I, I can't. I cannot fathom. I can only imagine thinking things like this. I'm the grandson of slaves. My parents were delivered powerfully by God, and then they bowed down to a golden calf that they made themselves. Yep. Who am I to accomplish this? Who am I? But the Lord is faithful. I remember the, a time, really it was the first time when I had to seriously step in and discipline our first child. And there had been course corrections along the way here and there, but this was different. 
somehow, and I don't even remember the circumstances, this had that biting edge of willful disobedience in it. Parents understand what I'm saying in that. And let me tell you, oh, the waves of tears and anguish that day. And then after I pulled myself together, There where I was, I still needed to discipline. I hadn't touched her. I was weeping because here's this beautiful child whom I love exhibiting a wayward heart that I knew I was guilty of. And here it is in my child. I could never correct her as an innocent man. Could not. And yet I had to lovingly correct her lest that sinister thing take root in her and produce something altogether foul. Parents, I want to encourage you, if you really love the Lord, know that your discipline is preserving your child's relationship with the Lord and with you. But never discipline out of a place of pride. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has made the iniquity of us all to fall upon Christ. In all things, humility. No punishment we could ever enforce in our situations would ever be sufficient to address the atrocities committed against the Lord of glory. And there's no sin of which we are not also guilty. Insofar as we have transgressed one letter of the law, we've broken the whole lot. It's so easy to gloss past what I'm trying to express here. But humility, because humility is like so basic. It's like, yeah, humility, yeah, really good, yeah. And that's about all the attention we give to it. But it doesn't resonate in our spirits. So I'm doing what I can to help it resonate in our spirits because there's something we desperately need to see here. Humility is the only path to victory in our in receiving what the Lord has promised to us. It's the only path forward. We know Moses prepared the people. He reminded Israel of their promised inheritance. He reminded them, this is the Lord's inheritance for you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Jesus, in the very first sermon that he preached, the Sermon on the Mount, he reminds us of our inheritance. And this is how he says it. Blessed are the meek, the humble, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Glory to God, let it be so in our generation. Worship before warfare, consecration before conquest, and in all things, humility. You know, if we're looking at our outward circumstances in the natural our circumstances, it's going to look like a crucible. I've you know, used that analogy here quite a lot. It's going to look that way. Crucible isn't a, isn't a comfortable place if you're in it. 
But if we can see things from the Lord's perspective, and there's others that have already prayed this today, but if we can see these things from the Lord's perspective, what we thought was a crucible is actually the Lord's hands around us, shaping us and this world for his glory. Maybe the pressure that we're feeling from that situation is how the maker himself is impressing his maker's mark upon his world by using his people in the middle of that circumstance. Maybe we can use the pressure that we sense in our circumstances to drive us to the Lord, to press into him, to get beyond the turbulence to that place where we know we have heard, to enter that place of calm that is only available where the Lord is. I will close with an illustration that some of you may find to be quite silly, but work with me, it's kind of how my brain works. So in scripture, you may be familiar that 12 is the number of God's people. We see it, there's 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, 12 apostles of the Lamb. There were 24 elders bowing down before the throne in Revelation. So that's 12. And of course, six is the number of man. Revelation tells us that 666 is the number of a man. It's not so much a spiritual thing, it's both, of course, but it's also pointing to a person. 666 is the number of man. Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day, so six is a very man, person-centered number in Scripture. That's how God uses it in Scripture. And so, follow me here, from the first two sixes, Adam and Eve in the garden, we get a 12 that is to multiply out and fill out the earth, right? God takes those two sixes and says, I want a 12. I want my, my people throughout the earth. Take dominion. But here's another thing that I realized as I was preparing for this message. I mentioned last week that three is the number of God or the manifestation of God. And we've got this. This is like all the way through Scripture. So I've pulled out a few examples. Abraham met with three people, and later we read that he met with God. So three is in there somewhere. Isaac was spared after a journey of three days with Abraham. Israel in these passages we've been talking about, had to travel for three days to meet with God at the mountain. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. Lazarus had been in the grave for three days, and Jesus was raised on the third day. Seems like when God's going to do something big, he likes to do it something with the number three or on the third day. It's just an observation. Four in Scripture tends to be a number that God's used for the earth. We've got the four winds the four corners of the earth. In Eden, in creation, there was a river that flowed, and this is an unusual river. Usually we find all these tributaries that get together and form a big river. This one's the opposite. It's interesting. There's this river in Eden that flowed from the garden and divided into four rivers to cover the four ends of the earth. We've got that, and when we, in Revelation, there's the four horsemen and the four living creatures, all of which have to do with the culmination of things that are leading up to what's, how God's wrapping up his earth creation. So what I can see in this is that the number 12 is the glory of God, the manifestation of God, God's three-ness, 
multiplied out to the four ends of the earth. A resplendent 12, that's us, the fullness of God's image spread across the earth in God's people. Maybe I'm pressing things too far. I'm not trying to play games, as I mentioned this. I'm, that, that's not my intent. I'm not here to impress you. What I see in this is a wonderful design that through the people of God, the manifest image and rule of God extends to the end of the earth. Like what he told Moses. Moses, I'm going to need a man. And you're it. I need someone that can talk to Pharaoh. I need someone, I need your mouth. I need you as a spokespiece. I need a human being that can express the fullness of the glory of God in natural circumstances. I need you. I pick you. And today, God picks you and me. That we would manifest the image and the rule of God to the extent of the earth. And with a nod and a wink, catch this, it's like Jesus looks at us like God looked at Moses and says, ain't going to be easy, you know. <laughs> but he did it. Moses did it. Ain't going to be easy. What you got there, kids or boys? What you got? Uh, five loaves and two fish. Ah, okay. Time for you to set lunch for the crowds. Ain't going to be easy. But with the Lord doing it, how beautiful. With a nod and a wink, he says something like that, but it's with a twinkle in his eyes that is as bright as the stars in heaven. Glory be to God. Stephen, I have a question. Do you want me to dismiss people or do you want to say something? Okay. 